Hi, everyone, and welcome to the RegTech Report, your update on all things RegTech. My name is Carl Viertel, and with me is Stefan Celestio. Our mission is to bring you the latest news, speak with industry pioneers, and news about the latest tech. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Hey, Stefan. Hello, Carl. Good to be back here in this room. <laughs> hey, Henry. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Yeah, uh, trying to keep cool. We actually have some uh, fairly nice weather here yeah, in Munich. Today so, it will um, be very hot. So. Yeah. Well, L- L- London's much the same. We, 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 we've got temperatures over 26, 27 degrees all this week, and it's going to get up to 33 next week, which is well, uh, unusual. There we go. Well, then uh, I think we have a very fitting top three for later, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> um, the gift that keeps on giving, cybersecurity. Um, it's a strange time and at the same time, actually a very typical um, development of cybersecurity. But I thought we might talk a little bit about what's new in cybersecurity in 2022. We're you know, halfway through. Um, what's happened? What's changed? What stayed the same? Um, I'd say, and that for me sums up sort of some of the main trends in cybersecurity in the sense that it, the threats continuously grow unchanged, the speed at which cybersecurity attacks occur and wreak havoc increases as they have been previously, um, the state slash state sponsored bad actors are still out there and the opportunistic, um, you know, attacks as a service, um, money makers are still out there. Has really that much changed or is it just more and worse as always? Yeah, I mean, that's what I was thinking. I mean, th- and one one thing to add to your list before, it's not always the su- super sophisticated stuff, right? I mean, phishing continues, gets more, gets more sophisticated. So um, this is what often happens. Um, you have the um, typical... Ransom, ransomware, crypto uh, stuff uh, hitting people uh, and people um, uh, getting their accounts taken over because they put, like maybe because of a phishing, put in their password somewhere where they shouldn't. So yeah. typical things. Yeah. I mean, arguably what has changed uh, is the regulatory response. I mean, uh, you were talking about the uh, SEC requirements uh, around cyber, uh, Henry. I mean, is this also more of the same, or where do you think there's a difference? Well, I think, uh, as you, you and I were discussing before, I think you know there is more and more requirement for people for for cyber incidents to be disclosed. So, um, I think where the SEC uh, announcement uh, came earlier this year is 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 moving that on. So it's not just the announcement. We've got we've got. Most most regulators and exchanges saying we, we want those incidents reported. I guess if you're a multinational, that provides issues because there's much, multiple little dis- disclosures you have to do in different jurisdictions. Um, where the SEC is, is interesting is going further is it's not just reporting the instances, the, those instances, but also updates on previous instances. So it's it's there there is more require, requirement to to give more detail. Um, but also they're now looking at the boards of directors. So, you know, what's their, what's the board's role? You know, what, and, and interesting, what's their experience they've got in cybersecurity? So, you know, as you, I think, Carl, you probably talked about, you know, in financial services, you've, you know, the CISO is, 
has 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 always had a more prominent role, but looks like now that that is, I guess, bleeding over into um, into to listed companies as well. Yeah. So you know, having that formally having that oversight, cybersecurity, what's the management role, and that that disclosure. Um, yeah. I, I mean, we saw this probably about a decade ago in financial services, right? That the role of the CISO was formalized. There was, you know, more experience required. Um, you sort of brought the CISO out from under the CIO or, you know, any conflict of interest and, you know, more direct reporting into management. And, uh, you know, I think that if you read between the lines on the SEC's requirements, essentially what we're doing um, or what they're requiring is exactly that, right? The only way that you can really um, give a comprehensive view that the board of directors needs to get behind is if you actually have a very prominent voice um, within management, mm-hmm. right? You're not going to be able to do that, you know, sort of three tiers down from the CIO or CTO. That's not where you're going to have the right voice. And so um, it, it'll be an interesting development likely for a lot of uh, uh, CISOs in U.S. listed companies. And, um, you know, if they haven't already responded uh, to sort of the rising need for stronger security or cyber governance uh, previously, they certainly will now for regulatory reasons. And I find that interesting that it's um, basically this broad, right? I mean, for every listed company, potentially before we've seen that only for certain regulated industries like financial services, critical infrastructure, and um, maybe the, the other comparison where, the, where it was relatively broad because of the potential impacts of some privacy. Yeah. Where we also had, um, especially in, in Europe, but also in, in other jurisdictions, you have this yeah. breach notification uh, rules and so on that affect basically every organization. Yeah. So, so I mean, the, the one thing to add here is that there's a commonality in what in the text that the SEC is putting out here is it's saying that this, just in this case, it's saying this dis- disclosure regime it reflects the evolving risks, as we've discussed, but also investors' needs. So if you look at the other pronouncements we talked about before around ESG, this is all about, you know, we have to move the agenda forward based on what the environment these firms are living in today. You know, and as you say, as you in your introduction, Carl, you know, cyber is, is security is, is vogue, and therefore all those disclosures, investors need to know the stance that these companies have to, 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 to the, that cyber threat. So they can make informed decisions when they're making those investments. So, yeah, I mean, I think it. Yeah, I mean, it really speaks to the materiality that is recognized of the cyber threat to modern organizations, right? So we're not saying this is only in you know data-driven organizations such as financial services. We're saying this is across the board and recognizing the fact there is no industry that is more or less immune against cyber threats than others. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, Toyota earlier this year. You know, they had a cyber attack. You know, twenty-eight of their production lines across fourteen plants went down. You know, it's yeah. costing them three hundred thousand dollars an hour. There you go. I mean, that that's that becomes very real. And one thing that I thought was uh, a really interesting sort of thought experiment is. What are the gaps that we see today in cybersecurity organizations where, you know, potentially the threats or reality has overtaken the ability to adapt, um, you know, within a cybersecurity organization? And I, I do think there are a few patterns. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I mean, there's um, 
there's common problems, right? But there's uh, can be also is also potential <laughs> that you can um, uh, and an opportunity that you can address those first and get quite a good um, quite a good coverage uh, if you address those. And um, um, there are a couple that come to mind. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, for me, probably something that I or I see reflected in, for example, when you know we're onboarded as a third party, mm-hmm. um, where there's this thinking in perimeter. Yeah. Right. Where it's still like, oh, you know, what happens within the gates and as soon as you enter the gate versus the shared yeah. responsibility everything, model. Everything is safe and secure within the yeah. gate. Yeah. And, you know, I think that while this was sort of a, you know, it was true 15 years ago, it was still relevant 10 years ago. Today, it's just in some cases wrong. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there's a, there's a good um, a metaphor in analog, right? I mean, uh, if you go back a couple hundred years, every city in Europe had a city wall. Doesn't exist anymore. Why yep. is that? Because that concept <laughs> just doesn't work anymore. Yeah? Um, so, um, yeah, so this is something, even if you still think you have a perimeter, it's so it's it's like a, a Swiss cheese. There's just so many holes in there, it's basically ineffective. And um, I'm thinking about it in a different way and kind of, thinking of who's taking care of what i think that's like kind of responsibility accountability this is a key topic because uh, where a lot of lots of gaps are happening is when somebody is saying uh, like assuming somebody else is taking care of a certain mm-hmm. aspect and yeah. then usually nobody is and for me sort of the evergreen of i guess uh, gap or vulnerability is data quality mm-hmm. Um, and this goes to so many different spaces. So, uh, you know, an example being uh, identity and access governance, who has access to what, you know, been a hot topic for the last 10 years still is mm. who's an owner of what asset. Yeah. And even just been, um, having some assurance that you actually have um, that you have everything in your list. Right. Is your list up to date or are you missing something? Yeah, and is one of those things, <laughs> one of your crown jewels. Um, uh, that is all, that's some, so that's an example of the things that's easy to do if you have a very small scale. But as soon as you grow to a certain size, it becomes very difficult to get, um, to get, um, like this completeness, but you have, you just got to start somewhere. Yeah. I guess one of the observations that I'm continuously making is the, there is still a lot of on-prem IT. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that I think the attack surface has gotten so broad for on-prem IT that if you're not spending an enormous amount of uh, effort and money on protecting your on-prem IT, you're probably not protecting it sufficiently. Mm -hmm. And you have a higher level of protection using, Mm -hmm. you know, either a core outsourcing provider or the cloud. Yeah, I mean, I think to that point, um, Carl, it, we we designed things 10, 10, 15 years ago, the on-prem IT, um, with the with the premise using your example that most people are in the office. Obviously, yeah. the pandemic's hit that attack. To your point, the 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 attack areas increased because now we've we've opened up so, so many more abilities for people to to dial into our to our network. Yes, we've got to make sure the right people are in, but it was never designed to to have that level of access and, and have the resilience. Unless, to your point, you have invested a lot and made sure that you've you've plugged all those gaps in that Swiss cheese. Well, and I mean, everyone's supply chain has gotten flat, uh, has, uh, or the value uh, depth has gotten flatter and you work with more suppliers. I mean, it's just... Uh... Yep. Yeah, we have a danger of repeating last last week's uh, um, <laughs> podcast. <laughs> They're all very interrelated, but yeah, uh, you know, the, the most common 
cyber attacks now are on on those common providers. Yeah. Looking at those common because they're they you know they're, they're the easy ways of getting into your your into you into your yeah. your firm. Yeah, and it's um, I mean there are certain let's say maybe new risks and aggregated risks on a systemic scale from it, but you as an individual organization, I think you can. You can somewhat rely on the fact that if it's a, um, a provider's core business to have a certain stance there, that they will probably do it much better than you could do it yourself. <laughs> yeah, just economies of scale. Yes, I mean, I I, so I always remember setting an on-premise solution, and they said, well, "Could you host host it for us?" Um, and I said, "You yeah. know," then this required their data to be put onto onto this the cloud, and and I said, "You'll never you'll never put that data on the cloud," and and. The response from the CISO was, if I, we put it on a hosted cloud with you, we'll know who has access to it. If we run it on our on-premise solution, I cannot give the same assurance to the board. They will make the wrong decision, which is it has to be on-premise because it's safer, even though I've made the argument it's not. So yeah. emotional I'm, decision. I'm sure that CISO really appreciates being quoted on this podcast. <laughs> with that. Well, it's all anonymous, isn't it? Thankfully, anonymous. But uh, <laughs> yeah. with that, um, should we do a? Well, it's not really a cyber basic segment, but certainly a basic segment. Yeah, basics, basic basics. Back to the basics. Do you know what time it is? Time for cyber basics. So, one of the things that we talk about a lot that we might not always use in the right way is what's commonly referred to as PII, so personally identifiable information. Mm. And one of my pet peeves in sort of, uh, uh, the you know, general society is like, oh, I can't provide you this data for privacy reasons, or I can't do this, or as we say in Germany, aus Datenschutzgründen. Yeah. <laughs> And it basically just means because I don't want to, because there's very seldomly really a privacy reason um, around that, especially if you've given consent. But at the core of it is, well, what is actually subject to data privacy? And that's where we come to PII. Um, yeah. Stefan. Yeah. So I think that confusion also, I mean, sometimes it's intentional from people, right? But people are confusing it with general confidentiality. Which yeah. is one of the like cybersecurity protection goals, right? I mean, that can be also a valid reason. But if you're talking about privacy, this kind of personally identifiable aspect always comes in. And, um, that is, that can be sometimes more broader than people think, because I think the, the, the direct, um, um, let's say instinct to say is, okay, something like your name, your email address, like your contact info, like really something that's directly tied to you, mm. right? I mean, that's. I think what everybody would directly say, okay, yes, this is my info. I don't want my my phone number to go out to people I don't want to because then I get all these annoying calls, eh? <laughs> which which happens, I think, nowadays to every one of us. But um, I think where we have to think a bit broader, and that conversation we just had about that CISO is actually a good example because you didn't drop any names or identifying mm. markers. We don't know who you're talking about, so it's I could have rather, given you, yeah, I could have given you yeah. data points and would have honed it in, but uh, yeah, yeah, but this is rather this way is rather anonymous, right? Mm. And then um, it's maybe a bit hypothetical. But as soon as we have, as we if you know who that person is, then all the other stuff around, like what you're telling about that person, basically the metadata, mm. that also becomes kind of PII because that's some aspects of that person's behavior, whatever personality whatever, um, and these kind of things. So that is, I think, where if 
for example, if you have some kind of database tables or log files where you have this identifying thing that, um, and you can tie other things to it, then pretty much everything is in scope. But, but, but what, I, what yeah. I find very interesting in this is, it, is it, to your point earlier when you did your intro, mm. Carl, is that people are sort of very reluctant to, pro to provide the information about my privacy, yet those same people are probably on social media platforms sharing far more information than they should do, making themselves, you know, the whole thing behind it was to know, you know, you don't want, if I want to present my privacy, I don't want people to know what I do, what I like and everything else. Yes, mm. and I want to do that in kind of my corporate world, but the social world, I'll just give it to everybody. And I probably don't click, <laughs> click, click the right disclaimers. And suddenly I just, you know, I've got a cybersecurity leak because it's all gone out yeah. through, through that platform. I mean, the, the core is like, there's, there's, uh, as Stefan mentioned, there's some very intuitive, um, very clear cut cases of what PII is, right? So I go and I want to order a pizza and I need to enter my name and address so that the pizza actually reaches me, right? Very clearly I'm giving PII and of course I'm giving consent for the platform to order the pizza on my behalf because, well, I want to have pizza, right? And then there are some cases and this is where things get a little bit more interesting, Stefan, is for example, the IP address. Yeah with which I go to that website. Yeah. Or like, I don't know, you let the license plate of your car, right? A normal person will not be able to do anything with it, but you can tie that data. So it's, uh, there's a term also called uh, pseudonymous, uh, where it's not really anonymous because somebody can resolve it to your real identity. And this is the case with residential IP addresses because uh, if the police asked, and I've done that myself, <laughs> um, basically we're in a, an investigation, um, if a police asks uh, um, the internet provider, they can get the name and the address of the person whose IP address this is usually up to certain time limits. Um, it's not indefinite, but um, you can tie you can tie the person to it. And this is where this kind of complexity goes in. But I wanted to mention something on your comment before, um, Henry, maybe a little history lesson, um, because it's uh, it's getting quite real for me. We have a census right now here again in Germany, and I was selected as an interviewee. I can't deny it. Yeah, it's mandatory to participate. But this was kind of in the 80s, the birth of this concept of... Um, They call it here the like informational self-determination was the uh, hmm. decision from the German exactly. So this was from the census in the 80s because they asked quite a lot of intrusive questions. Um, um, and um, people were asking, okay, what do you do with this data? Yeah, And basically this, the concept was um, more or less invented at that time that um, data about you, this PII, you own that yeah, and you control what happens with it. And that's also the answer to your question, Henry, before what's the difference? When people do it themselves, That's up to them. Yeah? You mm. can do with your stuff what you want. Yeah. Um, you cannot do it for somebody else. Yeah? Unless there's a, like a legal um, um, possibility or obligation or something like that, yeah. or you have the, the person's consent. And uh, that's really the, at the core of it. I, I heard a good, uh, like a metaphor for it. It's like the difference between locking yourself in a room and being locked in. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> One, you control yourself and the other, not. And now just to sort of add a little bit more complexity, um, Unfortunately, of course, the definition of what PAI is, is oftentimes driven by precedent or by yeah. court cases. So case in point, the IP addresses are considered um, uh, PII in Germany and I think most of Europe because yeah. of a court case in Germany where this was decided. Yeah. Um, but we also have in some jurisdictions and some laws, a differentiation between PII and special types of PII. Yeah, true. I mean, there's, uh, that's a GDPR, for example, and it was in the old German data privacy, um, regulation, um, 
something like health information, um, ethnic information, religious, this kind of stuff. It's basically uh, the example. membership. Yeah, the example I always take out, this is what basically the Nazis in the 30s and 40s took to filter out people they wanted to get rid of. Right? Yeah, I mean, those are very clearly the sources yeah. of where yeah. German privacy law seeks to yeah. put extra protection around. Um, One of the first cases of data mining using old IBM machines. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Back in the forties, <laughs> yeah. It's, um, the, this is where this list comes from, basically. Yeah. Um, so this is where really a lot of like a very high impact, uh, negative impact could be for the person because it's really the most, let's say, critical information you have you can have about a person. Yeah. So essentially, what it means, of course, for special types of PAI, there's a higher burden of proof for the data processor to protect it. Um, there is uh, will be a lot more scrutiny. Yeah. You have, you, have, you have to do a privacy impact assessment. Yeah, so unfortunately, not a simple um, a basic element, but uh, I think if uh, the foundation of thinking about what actually the PII is that you're talking about will hopefully lead some people to um, say the phrase uh, aus Datenschutzgründen less frequently. <laughs> Or at least say correctly what what the real reason is, right? I mean, that's usually also one way to um, to de deflate such a comment, right? To ask them, okay, what exactly is the concern here? And if they can't really describe it, then <laughs> then it maybe was uh, was not real. So I teased it at the beginning. Uh, should we do a top three? Yeah, let's yeah, do it. Different. Hey, hey, oh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's the top three. So it's warm. Uh, it's uh, even hot in places of Europe. And uh, of course, the best way to cool down um, are summer drinks. Um, should we share our top three summer drinks each um, on? Uh... Yeah. All right. Absolutely. Are we doing? Uh, everyone does their top three after each other, or doing? Are, do, are we doing? No, nah, let's. Third? Everyone does all of their three okay. at once. Henry, do you want to go? I'll I'll start first. So um, so if we go, we'll we'll go with the non-alcoholic first, of course. You know, one one needs one needs to have one one go-to. So always a so bit of fresh lime with soda on ice is absolutely fantastic. Very very refreshing, um, but. We have to. We have to be honest. When it's when it's we've had a nice sunny day. Um, there's nothing better than a, a nice crisp cold lager. Uh, just it tastes beautiful. But my definitely my top Fair my top drink. Um, if ever if you're ever lucky enough to go to Portugal, they do Mateus Rose, which just tastes sublime at the end of the day, early evening, the sun's going down. So nice that most of us will take a couple of those bottles home again. And you put it in the same fridge, and 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 it comes out the same temperature, and it just doesn't taste the same. So, my best <laughs> is unfortunately, a drink in a specific place which doesn't travel anywhere else. Yeah, it's probably about also about the air and stuff. I know that also from other places. Yeah. <laughs> Stefan, your top three. Yeah, drinks. I just wanted to comment also on on your first choice, there, and uh, there's also ways to turn that into an alcoholic drink. I, I, would, I wouldn't know how to do that. Of course, you'll have to teach me. That's um, yeah. yeah. And and there's a um, I think the the name of that drink is not appropriate here for this podcast. Yeah. We'll share it later. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, let me let me start. I will start with an alcoholic drink because I, I feel like there's a big comeback at least here in Munich of this drink is um, Aperol Spritz. 
This used to be big in like 10, 15 years ago, but I see it now everywhere again. And yeah, I order it quite frequently. Yeah. And it's actually a great drink with this bitterness aspect and the refreshing parts. So, and um, you could also do it non-alcoholic. Okay, that's also yeah. fine. <laughs> um, yeah, my second one is non-alcoholic because this is also, again, very German thing. Is something that's called a Schorle. In a Schorle, or in Austria, you would call it gespritzt. Yeah? <laughs> it's, um, it's basically taking any other uh, thing, like a juice or something like that, and putting um, some sparkling water in it, mm. and just basically diluting it. Yeah. And that makes everything, um, let's say, more refreshing than it was before. True. <laughs> and that also leads me to my number one, which was is my basically my um, discovery since last year or so. Um, there is also a beer mix thing uh, here in Germany or also specifically in, in Bavaria, they call it a Radler, which is a beer with a lemonade, which is also nice, but um, um, sometimes a bit too sweet. So the next level of that is making a beer scholle and it's called a sour, uh, a sour Radler. It's basically a beer with some um, water in it. it. Sounds stupid, but I, I think it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, Taking Sorry, it up a notch from watered down it's beer. Um, beer. <laughs> yeah. It's it's sadly it's a thing. It's definitely a thing. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely a thing. Might, I would might do it tonight. Take on in the UK, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> so my top three drinks. And so this is a very um I think also very Bavarian or Austrian thing, is a Schorle, uh, but a what's called a Holla Schorle. So basically, you take elderflower syrup mm. and uh, sparkling water. And like if you've just been for a hike or a bike ride and you arrive at a hütte, so, a, you know, a, a cabin or a chalet, mm -hmm. and you have a large quantity of nicely cooled, fresh spring water with elderflower syrup, mm -hmm. there is very little that is more refreshing. There's a, there's a variant of it you can do during skiing, but that's more yeah, of drink. Yeah. The only thing that is slightly more refreshing, I actually uh, came to know while I was mountain biking in Slovenia. So uh, these guys, I don't know if they started it, but they also do a radler, as uh, Stefan mentioned. However, they don't use lemonade. They use a grapefruit soda. Mm -hmm, okay. And so you've got they sort of the citrus, like tart paired with the beer and, you know, coming down off a single trail, cracking open one of the Union Radler that they have in Slovenia. <laughs> it is absolutely amazing. And then if you're, you know, had a shower, a little bit more civilized out on a terrace somewhere, my new sort of white wine of choice is an Italian variant, um, uh, obviously a derivative, I believe, of the Verdejo in uh, Spain, the Verdicchio. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's a fairly fresh wine. Sometimes they, you know, put it a little bit on oak. It gets some creaminess similar to a Chardonnay. Really, you know, slightly more complex maybe than some of the Spaniards, um, but a very refreshing white wine. So my, you know, very pretentious uh, top um, uh, drink, summer drink, uh, the Verdicchio. And I, I'm sure that's how it travels. So it'll, it'll taste good wherever you drink it, whether in Italy or, or back in Germany. Well, you know, just to be on the safe side, I try to drink it in Italy as much as I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, better safe than sorry. You're right. Quite so right. with that, I hope you all are staying cool. I hope you all are enjoying large quantities of your favorite summer drinks. And uh, we'll catch up soon. Cheers, guys. 
Thanks for listening. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter. Follow our dedicated podcast handle at the Rep. 